Hi, Mayuk. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Alicia. I'm excited to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Uh, no, I can't. <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> um, yeah, so I grew up in suburban New Jersey, uh, two towns, Edison and North Brunswick. Uh, so most of my food memories from my childhood revolve around my mother's home cooking. So my mother um, is an immigrant from the Indian state of West Bengal, just like my late father was. And so, you know, every night uh, for dinner, uh, she would cook um you know, some sort of uh, Bengali meal that had rice and dal, some sort of uh, vegetable preparation and then a non-veg protein. Uh, so those are most of my memories, kind of just like her home cooking. Uh, we didn't really go out to eat at restaurants very much. Uh, you know, I grew up comfortably middle-class I'd say, but I don't know, there's something about the etiquette of going out <laughs> to eat at restaurants that uh, just seemed very foreign to our family. So. What we considered luxury uh, when I was growing up, at least uh, in the 90s and the aughts was, you know, places like P.F. Chang's and Cheesecake Factory. Uh, Bertucci's was a really big event in our family <laughs> to go there, you know, but that, that was kind of the extent of our restaurant going experiences. So I didn't really grow up with a sense of, uh, you know, what it was like to go out to eat at restaurants and partake in the culture in that way. So. Right. Do you maintain the kind of eating at home that you grew up with that your mom gave you? I am such a bad cook in general that uh, I, I find that a lot of those kinds of dishes are probably too involved for me to, uh, you know, pull off as well as she could um, and still can. Sorry, she's not deceased or anything. <laughs> she's still with us and she's still cooking this stuff really nicely. Uh, no, but I, the stuff that I cook at home now over in Brooklyn is where I live is just simple stuff that is enough for me to survive on, you know, like I, I purely just uh, only cook well enough to feed myself and right. uh, exist in this world. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, and I mean, that brings me to my next question, which is that you didn't come to food writing out of a passion for food, which is what so many of us do. Right. And that also is why you're such a unique voice in the field. Like you're not interested in why people cook well. Like that's not an interesting thing to you in your work. I mean, uh, maybe it is interesting to you, but it's like, uh -huh. that's like sort of the least interesting part of why people cook and why food is interesting. Um, and, and you're not kind of dazzled by that. <laughs> and totally. so, yeah, like how did you come to write about food and how did you kind of find your way to create your voice in this field? For sure. Uh, first of all, I just want to say thank you for even... <laughs> regarding my initial lack of passion for food as um, a qualification, because I think that a lot of people who we call colleagues and peers in this industry uh, would consider that a demerit or disqualification <laughs> for me like existing in this space at all, but whatever. So thank you for that. Um, but in terms of how I came to food, so I have been a professional food writer for five years now. Can you hear the exhaustion in my voice? <laughs> I, I uh, never imagined that I'd be doing this with my life for uh, this long. But what happened was, so I grew up wanting to be a film critic uh, and 
I was the kind of kid who devoured like Entertainment Weekly. I memorized everything about the Oscars in high school. I could name every Best Actress nominee from 1960 onward. Now I'm a little rusty, but we can end the conversation today with some tests, you know, and see how see how good I still am. But you know, I was very hell bent on becoming a film critic in the vein of Pauline Kael and. Um, that didn't quite happen just yet, even though I still do write about film. But um, basically I graduated from college in 2014 and in 2015, when I was living in New York, I started to freelance a lot about topics like film and television and music, everything but food, basically. I had only written one food piece and it was for the, uh, you know, RIP Village Voice, the OG Village Voice. and. Uh, that piece was like held indefinitely. And I think <laughs> I think that the editor just didn't have, um, you know, the heart to actually kill it, you know? <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> maybe that was a sign that I actually don't belong here, but regardless, <laughs> um, you know, fast forward to uh, summer 2016, I get an email from an editor at a site called Food52, which uh, many listeners slash readers may know. <laughs> and they were just like, yeah, you know, we're hiring for a staff writer position right now, someone who is not necessarily a food person in terms of home cooking or going out to eat at restaurants. And I was like, I'm your guy. And, <laughs> you know, but someone who is going to be able to write about food through a broader cultural lens and perhaps tap into a segment of the audience we haven't quite reached just yet. Uh, and you know, initially when I got that email, I was like, this is hilarious, please. You know, like absolutely not. But you know, I took the meeting because, you know, back then I was 24 years old. I was a freelancer. I wanted to write more ambitious, deeply reported stories. That was back when I still equated the length of the story with uh, narrative <laughs> strength in some way, you know, so I, I was like, I want to write, you know, long stories, you know, <laughs> which I've now kind of moved away from, but we can talk about that later. Uh, but um, anyway, so I took the meeting and, you know, I, really wanted the trust of an editor to um, allow me to write those kinds of stories that I just did not get as a young freelancer. And the fact that this was a salary job with benefits, you know, like those were hard to come by in 2016, just like they are today, you know, a salaried culture writing job with benefits, like, excuse me, you know, it's such a rarity. So uh, I kept interviewing for it and then I got the job. But I just remember in the days leading up to me realizing that I was going to accept this offer, I was kind of laughing to myself. And I was just like, wow, I'm going to be a food writer. That's hilarious <laughs> because I had grown up and I'm not sure what kind of cultural depiction is responsible for this, but I'd grown up thinking that food writing was very much the domain of straight, white, affluent men. And I was one of those things. I was a man, but otherwise I was <laughs> a queer person of color and, you know, child of immigrants, I grew up speaking two first languages, you know, it just seemed so not an option for me career-wise. Uh, and so I never even considered it. So I just thought that the whole little ride was kind of hilarious. So uh, it's just like, okay, strap in my, you know, see what's in store for you here. Uh, <laughs> so uh, it was definitely a challenge in uh, those first few months. Uh, it remains a challenge, of course, uh, to be in this industry. Uh, you know, coming from marginalized communities and having leftist points of view. Uh, but, you know, back in late 2016, when I started that job at Food 52, uh, I had to struggle for a few months to really find my footing um, in that site because I was the only person of color on an editorial team of 
white women, wonderful white women, you know, all a great, a great collection, uh, but I was just writing from a different center of gravity than uh, everyone else. And um, it was quite apparent that I was a new voice to the site in the sorts of comments that I got that was just so allergic to my point of view and the way that I expressed that point of view. Uh, so it was tough, but the way I started to kind of ease into the job was writing a lot of personal essays because, you know, throughout my life, I had never really considered what food meant to me beyond providing me mere sustenance, you know? I was always like, okay, cool. This is something I need to do. I need to eat. And then I'm going to go to sleep and wake up and do this uh, all over again the next day, you know? Uh, but being in the job at first really asked me to consider, like, what does food mean to you? Especially as, like, a queer Bengali person, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> and so I wrote a lot about my identity and how food is tied to it and how I'd never really considered all these things and how food had shaped me in ways that I just was not aware of, uh, you know, so early on um, in my life. And after I got all those personal essays out of my system, uh, I started to grow extremely bored with myself <laughs> as a character, you know? I was like, I've exhausted every story that lives inside me. So let me move on and turn my gaze outwards. So uh, what I started to do was write a lot of profiles of uh, figures who were like me kind of on the margins of the food industry, you know, um, were not from the uh, dominant overrepresented uh, populations within this industry uh, and, you know, really made an impact with their food or their writing or both in some way. So often these uh, figures tended to be people of color, women of color, immigrants, immigrants of color, queer people of color like myself, you know, et cetera. And uh, I found a lot of comfort in exploring these stories because they made me understand my place in this industry a bit better because I just felt so alone and so confused. And those first few months of V2V2, I was just like, what am I doing here? <laughs> like, how did I get here on this planet, you know? Uh, and I still feel the same way, but you know, just, just less intensely now. Uh, so yeah, and it was also kind of a way of me educating myself because there's so much about culinary history in America that I just am so unaware of. And when I stepped into that job, you know, you'd think that that's kind of a prerequisite for taking on a food staff writing job. But I was just like, I'm an idiot, you know, um, <laughs> and, and like I'd seen Julie and Julia. That was kind of the extent of my, uh, you know, culinary history education. Right. So, you know, writing these stories is a way of um, schooling myself uh, in a very public manner. <laughs> you know, I was learning on the job. And that's nice. so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because I think still the picture of food writers in movies is so far from what it actually is. <laughs> like the, well, it's funny that you thought food writers were like straight dudes because I was, I think restaurant critics have always been straight white men generally. Right. And then like the people writing about lifestyle, like Craig Kilborn or James Beard, or that have always, it's always been women or gay white men. Like, mm -hmm. so it's, right. <laughs> it's totally. been like a very, it's always been like such a segregated field where like, totally. and, and maybe now we're, we're getting better. I don't know. But, um, and oh, I, I, I don't mean, know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there is a movie I, I really like, cause it's one of those, like, uh, one of the last middle brow adult movies which mm -hmm. I hope are making a comeback, but it has Tony Collette and Greg Kinnear and they go to dinner at a friend's house. And I can't, is it dinner with friends? 
I and was then, like a little Miss Sunshine. <laughs> I don't no, remember no. that scene. <laughs> Wait, th- there's a different movie where it's them, I think. But anyway, oh, but the, 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 the people whose house they go to are like writers for Savour. And yeah. they're, they're just going on glamorous trips. And like they have kids and they have a huge house. And it's like, wow, I did think that that's what it would be like to be like a magazine writer. I was like, oh, my life is going to be so glamorous and I'll have money. And like, I don't, I had no conception of how difficult and poorly paid this oh, job yeah. was. <laughs> what are you talking about? It pays so well. You it know? pays so well. Scrooge McDuck over here, just swimming <laughs> in money, you know? Uh, yeah, I, I'm trying to think of what film kind of uh, made me think of food writers in that way. You're definitely correct that I equated food writing with restaurant criticism. Restaurant criticism, yeah. Um, maybe it was Mystic Pizza. I don't know, but Ooh. I'm trying to, you know, because I remember there's that scene near the end, right, where yeah, the restaurant the- critic comes in. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I can't think of what else. But anyway, it, <laughs> it, you know, my point stands, which is that, you know, uh, however you cut it, you know, whether yeah. food writing was a domain of those white, straight, rich dudes or gay white men or white women there there's not a place for me there you know exactly. yeah at the table so you know so yeah no yeah we could go on forever about that but um in your book tastemakers seven immigrant women who revolu- revolutionized food in america you profile seven women and their work you put them in there chronologically which i think tells a really great story and really kind of contextualizes a evolution of food in the United States in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you kind of vary your selections between popular people like Marcella Hazan and also like the less obvious choice, like Julie Sani, you know, the mm-hmm. obvious choice, if you wanted to talk about a woman immigrant in America who did Indian food, you'd talk about water drop food, right? So right. like, but by making these choices, you get to present some really interesting contrasts between reception of you know, how people were received and how people really changed things. And, and you know, even what kinds of books were successful. Like I, I so much about like what uh, someone's book w- looked like versus someone else's book and, and how that also influenced the reception. Right. Um, and so I wanted to ask how you decided on those women. I know you, you write about it a little bit in the kind of afterward, but, but you know, how, mm. how were your, what was your process for deciding? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. You know, um, it took me many months and it even changed after the proposal uh, writing process uh, because the women who were in my, whom I had selected for my proposal were not the ones who ended up in the book, uh, which is funny. But, (laughs) um, you know, in terms of selecting people like Marcella Hazan, I realized that, you know, I needed to provide uh, some sort of entry point or way in to readers who might be scanning, you know, books at a bookstore yeah. or online and <laughs> right. be like oh this sounds kind of interesting is there yeah. anyone I know here and you know, Marcella, Marcella Hazan is close to a household name for yeah. uh, people who are home cooks you know uh, and actually once I selected her it really illuminated why uh, certain other women were kind of in that book as well because Marcella Hazan is someone whom I obviously have great affection for, you know, <laughs> and I have even more affection for after writing about her. Uh, yet, you know, throughout her career, she was dogged by so many accusations of being a difficult woman, quote unquote. And, you know, we know now, we now recognize that as a sexist dog whistle, uh, you know, to call a woman difficult uh, when she stands up for what she believes in uh, and fights for the integrity of her work. But uh, it's interesting how those sorts of 
criticisms, you could say, did not torpedo her career in the same way it may have for other women who didn't possess the same advantages of her that she did, you know? Uh, and so that's why I selected someone like Madeline Kamen, who is uh, from France, who, you know, was so brilliant, had just an incredible sense of French technique and how to apply it to different uh, styles or uh, cuisines rather, excuse me, uh, like American cuisine. And um, she, throughout her career, however, uh, you know, her brilliance was overshadowed by the fact that she was very openly critical about Julia Child and, you know, Julia Child's position as a white American woman being this ambassador for French cooking in the United States. And, you know, as a result, you know, throughout her life and career, Madeline came in and faced all these accusations that she was just, you know, this bitter woman who could not stand to see other people succeed, etc. And so I started to wonder, you know, why is it that someone like Marcella Hazan did become a big name in spite of these perceived difficulties versus someone like Madeline Kamen, you know, her road to uh, recognition was so much more rocky, you know? Right. And uh, in terms of selecting other women, uh, you know, <laughs> so I initially did not set out to write about Julie Sani uh, because I did go for the obvious choice, uh, Mother Jeffrey, and this had a little, this didn't have much to do, um, sorry, how do I say this? <laughs> this had a lot to do with the fact that she was a film actress in right. addition to a food writer. Yeah. And of course, you know, my whole topical passion and interest is in the film. So I was like, oh, this is going to be fun for me, you know? <laughs> but then I realized, you know, in spending more time with Julie's work, I realized that there has not been the kind of deep uh, appraisal of her work that, you know, she certainly merits and A, and then B, uh, you know, I think that her whole philosophy in general is just so admirable to me. She is someone who truly focuses on the strength of the work. You know, she puts her head down, lets the work speak for itself. You know, she's not always out there and, you know, trying to, you know, grab eyes or attention, which is okay if she were to, you know, right, no right, judgment right. there. But <laughs> um, that's just such a fascinating way to live as a creative. And it's right, really right. Uh, aspirational to me, honestly. <laughs> you know? And I think that there's something to say in her story about, yeah. you know, the kinds of, um, you know, what it's like to live as a creative person under American capitalism and uh, how to survive in public memory, uh, you know, through that. And so that's why I was like, you know, Julie Sani might actually be a more interesting challenge to me. Also, I had written about Mother Jeffrey before back at Food 52. So I was like, you know, this is kind of worn territory for me. I want to tackle a fresh story. Um, yeah. So, you know, those were the kinds of considerations um, I had when I was curating this list, let's say, of seven women, this <laughs> cast of characters, rather. I think that's a more diplomatic way to put it. Right. Uh, yeah. So... Yeah. And then in terms of my last, uh, you know, story subject, Norma Shirley, you know, she was from Jamaica. And I, when I stumbled upon her, uh, you know, the way I stumbled upon her actually was I Googled the Julia Child of just that phrase, literally. And, you know, so many hits uh, for people like Marcella Hassan and Julie Sani, they've been called, you know, respectively, uh, the Julia Child of Italy, Julia Child of India. But Norma Shirley is... Um, a name that came up as well in one article and she was from Jamaica. And I thought that she, her story was so fascinating because she did live 
in America for a few decades uh, from the 60s uh, until the 80s. But then she went back home to Jamaica and she became a star there. And I think that her story had so much to say regarding the hurdles that Black immigrant women from the Caribbean had to face in terms of getting enough capital to you know, make their uh, creative dreams a reality in this country in culinary terms, you know? Yeah. No, I love that. Have you written about the phrase, the Julia Child of? (laughs) I would love to, you know, I feel like there's an op-ed in there. Yeah, There is definitely an (laughs) op-ed. You know, I I have like a little spiel about it in uh, the Norma Shirley chapter, but originally it was like this long thing it's like super blown out but then you know I had to winnow uh you know in subsequent drafts but yeah it was right. there originally so yeah thanks that. thanks for the Please reminder yeah because I want to read about it because there's also you know there's um there's a cookbook author from Puerto Rico who's been referred to as the Julia Child of Puerto Rico I actually have to open her cookbook today so oh, um, right. what's her I name her, do you know her name is Carmen and I can't remember the rest of her name. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Cool, cool, cool. Um, but she wrote Caribbean cookery, I believe. Um, nice. But yeah. Oh, no. Cocina Criollo. Right. That's okay. What that's, a, that's, that's what I figured. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey. Um, and I think that this, the, I'm, your, your appreciation for like the difficult women <laughs> is uh-huh. maybe part of, and you also mentioned this earlier that like you knew the best actress for, since 1960 with the winner of the best. <laughs> right. like, like you have a love of, of women and drama and glamour. And I think that you bring that to the book with how you write about them. Like you really bring them to life and you see all sides of them and you, you just appreciate them in such a way that is like, I don't know, it's just so alive and vivid and, and cinematic. And so, you know, did you think about that while you were writing the book? Like, did, did your love of film and of actresses influence your appreciation of these women and your ability to, to render them so vividly? First of all, thank you for saying that. That's a huge compliment <laughs> because the last thing I want anyone to say about my book is like, oh, this is boring as shit, you know? <laughs> that's my big fear. Uh, and that's what I, I asked myself when uh, I'm self-editing. It's like, is this boring me to tears? You know, does this feel like homework? Uh, so yeah, thank yeah. you for that. Yeah, I would absolutely say that my love of uh, cinema and actresses in particular uh, <laughs> influenced the way that I approach these stories, you know? Yes. Um, when people ask me what, if what my favorite films are, of course I have a list, but then I, <laughs> the, the conversation almost immediately pivots to, you know, what are my favorite film performances? Right. And I have that running list and my favorite <laughs> performances in film are ones by actresses who you know just dominate a whole movie and their performance just you know um overtakes the uh entire film so I'm thinking of like Jane Fonda and Clute Uh, that was one performance that when I first saw it in high school I just it completely expanded my notion of what a movie performance could be because her skill is such that you are able to understand what this woman who is a sex worker and actress in the movie. It's a wonderful movie, you should watch it um, if you haven't yet. Um, you know, you were able to understand what she is feeling at any given moment in time without the need for dialogue or narration, like first person narration, excuse yeah. me. Uh, and, you know, so many of my other favorite performances in film operate along those same lines, like Barbara Stanwyck and Stella Dallas and <laughs> uh, the Indian actress Sri Devi in English English, you know, they don't need 
uh, dialogue to tell you what they are feeling. And I wanted to bring something similar to these chapters, you know, um, and that's why I took the approach that I did, which is that, you know, I don't necessarily, I, I did a lot of reporting for this book, of course, yet I don't directly quote those people, you know, it's like, uh, Julie Sani's friend, you know, said this <laughs> to me about, you know, it's like, that, yeah. that feels so, um, the, the kind of um, journalistic um, gaze there just feels so apparent in a way that feels antithetical to the kind of book uh, that I want to offer, a book experience that I want to offer, excuse me, to readers. Um, and so, um, I decided to instead just kind of write this book uh, in a way that would allow readers to kind of step through these women's lives as, you know, these women live those lives. <laughs> so um, that's why it was really important for me to find women who had memoirs or were still alive, like Julie Sani and Najme Bob Monglage, uh, you know, whom I could speak to about, you know, what it was like to you know, um, experience all um, of these different things uh, at different junctures in your life. Yeah. So right. that's one way in which, uh, you know, performances and the performance that I love uh, really influenced the way that I approached these uh, chapters. You know, I wanted readers to feel what these women were feeling at any given moment in time, uh, like as intimately as possible. Uh, secondly, I, and you might, you might appreciate this because I know you're a fan <laughs> of his as well, but uh, the filmmaker Pedro uh, Almodovar really oh, yeah. influenced my work so much and my writing uh, because he is someone who, like me, is, you know, a queer man who has tremendous affection for female stories and renders them with, uh, sorry, and I have to compare myself to him in saying that <laughs> I, he, I've, let me say this again, he, not myself, he <laughs> does such a wonderful job of rendering these stories with such love and care. And he also, you know, in, in my favorite movies of his, he really works with such a broad canvas. You know, I'm thinking right. about all about my mother and Volver, women on the verge of nervous breakdown, you know all of those um, movies have so many characters and so many vivid, uh, you know, women who are interacting with one another. And I want to do something similar with this book as well. You know, and that was kind of my approach because of course the question that was hanging over me as I was writing this is like, how will people react to the fact that I am someone who presents the world as a man writing these yeah. stories, you know? Uh, and so he was kind of a, uh, very helpful model for me to follow in terms of what sensitivity looks like in that regard. Right. And I think you really achieved that sort of, what would be the adjective form of Almodovar? <laughs> like, uh, Almodovarian? Like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure. No, but your book is Almodovarian. Let's, or let's point it now. Yeah, Almodovar-esque. Yeah, that's you know, definitely a word. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> But I mean, I was thinking when I was writing the, when I was reading the book, when I was writing these questions, I was thinking about that because I know it's been um, a criticism that you've anticipated that you like right. sort of superficially maybe received. And right. for me, it's, I ne it never would have occurred to me because I do love El Modivar. Like another of my favorite writers, Reynaldo Arenas is a queer man who wrote a lot about women. Like the way I think most women love being seen and by queer men <laughs> like like I don't think that that is you know I don't I'm going on a weird tangent now but I just it really is like when you see all mode of our films when you read your book when you read Arenas when you like Manuel Puy too like there's so mm -hmm. much there in and so much like honesty and like humor and like 
affection and warmth. Like this isn't like, it's not like, you know, the, the male gaze or something. It's not the same thing. It's, and totally. so like that criticism is completely off the wall. If it, if it does come, it's off the wall and I'll, I'll, I'll head that off at the pass right now. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for going to bat for me. Uh, you know, And I think that, you know, what's difficult for me that I didn't have words for until I was kind of done writing this book. Uh, and I write this in the intro, um, in the book itself, but as a queer person, you know, I, like many other queer identifying people, have a very complicated relationship to gender and gender expression that my appearance might not necessarily reflect, you know? And so I wish that more people who would come for me in that regard would understand that about me, you know, and not try to erase my queerness and all its attendant complications, you know? Uh, And it's really hurtful. And you know, we live in a very inhospitable world for queer people. And so it's not easy to kind of live with this. Uh, so yeah, whatever, if that comes for me, then, you know, well, I'll, I'll go to bat for myself. Well, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you know, the book's introduction also takes aim at the kind of milquetoast nature of food media, which is where you might see kind of this kind of baseline really banal criticism that doesn't engage with people in their entirety um and that's also expressed in the text you know Craig Claiborne comes up so much from the New York Times how you know he named Elena Zaleta the definitive voice of Mexican cooking then later switched it made it Diana Kennedy and you know like the contrast between how Mother Joffrey was received against how Julia Sani was you know despite the fact that Sani has restaurant experience which would later be erased which we can talk about um and like that is a constant theme in the book how women were pitted against each other like how being white and or American allowed you to have authority where lived experience did not. And, you know, the book is also in term, it also, it tells these stories, but it's also a critique of how narratives about women in food have been constructed. And so what do you think is the contemporary significance of the food media narratives that you portray in the book itself? Yeah, that is a wonderful question. Um, I would definitely say that a lot of these sorts of patterns still persist. I think that food media, regardless of what lies it wants to tell itself, um, is still infatuated with stars and stardom. And as a result that, you know, creates a culture in which there's a hyperfixation on one specific person as a sort of representative of a movement or cuisine or whatever. And that can sometimes blot out uh, other figures who are doing equally commendable work, excuse me. Uh, So that definitely is still a thing. And in terms of who gets to be assigned authority, you know, this kind of dovetails with my answer to your last question, but um, your previous question, excuse me. But it is interesting how there's maybe a bit more scrutiny regarding, uh, you know, white folks with material power and, you know, how they get to uh, ascend to positions of authority on cuisines or cultures that are not necessarily the ones that are inherent to them or the ones that they grew up with, uh, et cetera. Uh, Yet, I don't know that those kinds of questions are asked as urgently as they should be, uh, at least by the people in power, you know. Um, Just speaking from my own perspective and position, you know, I think that I've gotten so much blowback from people in power about being a queer man of color writing stories primarily about women um 
in a way that does not feel um, equal to the sorts of questions that, I don't know, a white woman writing a cookbook about Mexican food does. Um, a white woman who is not native to Mexico, excuse right. me, uh, you know, and it just feels like there might be an imbalance. I definitely think that, you know, well, everyone should be asking those questions about who benefits materially from telling what stories based on their position. That is absolutely, uh, you know, that's what diligence looks like. Uh, and that's what accountability looks like, et cetera. Uh, yet I do find that, uh, <laughs> you know, whiteness is still quite powerful in this industry and it goes unquestioned. And uh, there's usually more scrutiny reserved for people from marginalized communities uh, telling stories that people perceive to not be their own, so. Right. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's really incredible. <laughs> mm-hmm. I like how the, the power structures don't change at all. The, the, the fame continues to be, yeah, like we would still rather Diana Kennedy than, you know, a, a woman who appears and is indigenous to, mm-hmm. Mexico like you wouldn't and when I say indigenous I mean like actually like we would, right, right. we would rather have it filtered through Diana Kennedy who does learn things from people and I I mean nothing against her I think she's actually pretty wonderful um and, yeah. and a real you know spitfire and that's great and but the narrative really hasn't changed from like a sort of pre-feminism idea of like how hard a white woman has to work to be equal to white men and like the narrative hasn't adjusted from that like we still are just like women have to work so hard to be the same as white men it's like well that shouldn't be our goal <laughs> like our goal uh, should be a bit totally. more <laughs> nuanced than that totally um, it should yeah it should be in service of equity for yeah, uh, a for lot everyone. of other people who are quite <laughs> oppressed uh, you know uh yeah so that's definitely true i also will just add that you know uh this is probably stating the obvious but there's this presumption of objectivity you know that dirty word um, (laughs) when it comes to folks like Diana Kennedy and uh, who I agree is you know she's really put in the work and in spite of some troubling things that she said in the past I have a lot of respect for her labor you know Um, so sorry to you know put her uh, in the hot seat (laughs) Um, but uh, yeah there is still this presumption of kind of like oh this person is coming to this culture, this cuisine from a very even keeled place. And they're right. going to be able to be the uh, interlocutor for this presumed white affluent audience, you know? Right. And so I think that presumption of the reader uh, remains the same as well in food media. It's still right. kind of, you know, at least in the mainstream food media, you know, you see stories that are kind of written with white rich audiences in mind. So Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, one thing I noticed also throughout the book was how, teaching was a really essential part of many of these women coming into their own in food you know like um julia child was teaching before she was writing a cookbook i think marcella was cooking i mean teaching before she was really writing a cookbook um you know and also you are teaching food journalism at nyu like how has teaching complemented or not your writing practice like how did it work with the book yeah, well, uh, I love teaching. So I've been teaching at NYU since 2019. So I, that was the same year that I was working on the first draft of the book. And I teach two classes there at the journalism school. First is an introductory class to food writing. And the second is advanced reporting food journalism class. Uh, and so that first semester I was teaching, it was the introductory class. And so I was dealing with a lot of students who 
we're not necessarily used to writing in any sort of journalistic capacity. So I had to really revisit the basics and figure out how to communicate those basics to uh, students who really wanted to learn, you know? And so I talked about story structure. I talked about sentence structure. I talked about varying your sentence length and, you know, resisting cliche when you, uh, you know, describe food as an object, you know, all these kinds of one-on-one things that were incredibly helpful for me as I was writing because, you know, one lesson that I imparted upon my students, for example, that I kind of said earlier, which is that, you know, if this is boring for you to write, chances are it's going to be boring as hell for the reader to absorb, yeah. you know, and they're going <laughs> to put the book down. You don't want to lose the reader in any way, you know, and that is something that I really tried to, um, you know, tell myself as well as I was going through multiple drafts of this book. It's like, you know, are you bored as shit? You know, well, yeah. that's the problem. <laughs> you know, let's go back to the drawing board here. Uh, yeah, so it was immensely helpful. You know, I will say this, uh, teaching is a lot of work. Grading yeah. is so much work. And uh, I was definitely, you know, <laughs> a disaster <laughs> trying to, <laughs> to balance book writing against the demands of teaching. But ultimately, I do hope that it served this book well, because it really asked me after years of just kind of, you know, feeling as though I had gotten into my little groove as a writer, you know, really asked me to take a step back and be like, okay, are you being as disciplined as you can? You know, the flip side of that, of course, is that when you do kind of have that rigorous self-editor in you, uh, Mm -hmm. you risk kind of, um, I don't know, losing a sense of play or whimsy yeah, yeah, in your yeah, writing. Yeah. And that's something that I worry about with my own uh, self. Mm-hmm. I'm not fishing here for compliments. Please no, don't reassure me being like, oh yeah, no, no, it's so it's so playful and whimsical. No, 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 I, I'm not looking for that, you okay. know, but um, <laughs> so no pressure there. But, uh, you know, when I revisit some of my early writing, I'm like, oh, damn, this is so overwritten. But there's also a sense of kind of like throwing shit at the wall and seeing yeah, what yeah. sticks, you know, and I don't quite have that anymore. And so that's mm-hmm. something I'm trying to get back and yeah. trying to have more flexibility um, with when I teach my students as well. You know, I encourage them to kind of, you know, experiment a little bit rather than, uh, you know, hew to some sort of uh, trusted format. So, Right. Do you write for yourself? Do you journal or anything? I don't uh, because, <laughs> you know, I, I really fear just writing something that I'm going to revisit like a few weeks, months, years down the line and being like, oh my goodness, this is just this incredibly like mortifying time capsule, you know, and I don't (laughs) want to revisit what, you know, like these raw thoughts in my mind. It takes me a long time to write something these days, you know, and so I like to give myself that time. So I don't (laughs) journal, but I know so many writers who do. Um, It never worked for me because I'm so, I'm so repulsed by myself. So (laughs) (laughs) well, I mean, it helps with the, um, the editor and the, um, and like shutting yourself down, I think. Like, cause you get, you know, if you if you do the stream of consciousness thing a little bit, I think this is like the artist's way. This is what the artist's way teaches you. Right, right, <laughs> totally. I've never done, I've never done it. Um, I think I like have a natural inclination toward whatever it tells you you're supposed to do. Like I just, so it is right, what it is. Right. Um, totally. Which is like, you know, write indulgently and um take yourself on dates like that's that's easy for me to do I can do that yeah yeah. I will say this you know I reread my first draft of this book it's total vomit draft and I love that phrase you know (laughs) but it's just like damn you know I had to do so much culling after that yeah 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 yeah, no I did 
I did uh, kind of uh, indulge my worst tendencies as a writer okay, in the first good. draft. So, you know, I got I that think- out of my system. So <laughs> <laughs> I think it's important. It's important to do. Um, and, you know, in the book, this is jumping into a, a different area, but, you know, many narratives about cuisine in the U.S. are all about assimilation. Um, mm-hmm. I wrote about this when I wrote about Taste the Nation. <laughs> um, and I wanted to ask, like, how did you resist that easy pull about how they were only significant in terms of what they taught and brought to whiteness and to Americanness? Yeah, um, that is a wonderful question uh, because you're right in that assimilation has been kind of the dominant narrative yeah. when it comes to talking about immigrants and cooking and cuisine in America. And I am no longer interested in assimilation just as a concept when it comes to uh, immigrant cuisine, quote unquote, immigrant cooking, uh, because it is in service of white supremacy. Uh, One of the things that's so troubling about a lot of these texts, including one of the ones that you just mentioned, Mm -hmm. (laughs) being very diplomatic here, (laughs) um, you know, is that it doesn't quite question the idea of the nation itself, you know, and you know, I personally, you know, as a leftist, I'm <laughs> troubled by these uh, alleged notions of uh, America being predicated upon ideals of inclusivity and being a melting pot and everything like that. And that's what I want to trouble with this book. And I want to show that there's so much struggle involved in, uh, you know, creating that picture of America. Mm-hmm. And it can be really unsustainable for the people who are making that happen uh, because they have to survive under capitalism, you know? Um, So, you know, I know that there have been books uh, over the past few years where writers who are writing about cuisines from the global South or adopted from the global South, uh, they try to assert, you know, X food is American food. Like, you know, my mother's cuisine and what it represents is American food. I'm, you know, with all due respect to those writers, that's okay, you know, that that is their prerogative, but it's not mine because ultimately it centers the comfort of a white affluent reader, which is what food media has done for decades. And (laughs) it's just useless. It's, you know, why seek approval from white institutions? And I think that it's easier for me to say this and come to this realization now because I was very fortunate to get you know, that approval was crumbs of attention, let's say, from, uh, you know, white institutions that gave me access to opportunities and capital that, you know, I would not have had otherwise, you know, Mm -hmm. and I understand what that kind of recognition is useful for now. And uh, I realize that that's not necessarily the world that I want to be a part of, you know, Um, and it's more gratifying to write for your own communities or, you know, people from, uh, typically underseen, uh, underseen by whom, uh, you know, like, <laughs> um, underrepresented community, yeah. let's yeah. say, I think that's a little more careful. Um, yeah, it's more gratifying work to do, yeah. uh, you know, than just seeking the approval of white institutions in any way. And so that's why I ended the book, excuse me, on the story of Norma Shirley, because, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of an indictment of, uh, right people's conception of how wonderful America is because you can, you know, get a taco down the street and then you can get, you know, like sock paneer on the next block or something, you know, this was a woman who was a black immigrant woman from Jamaica who tried to get her concept and vision of 
Jamaican cuisine filtered through French technique, you know, she tried to get off the ground in New York in the 80s, but it was incredibly difficult for her because she could not secure the capital to make that happen. So she literally had to return to Jamaica to make those possibilities and dreams come true. And it was only then that, you know, the uh, American food media started to pay attention to her and her enormous talent, you know? Yet she literally had to leave America to make her uh, creative dreams a reality. And that that should embarrass readers, I hope, Mm -hmm. you know, especially readers who are like, oh, America's great, you know? Yeah, I'm not interested in assimilation. Uh, yeah, so. I'm really interested to see how uh, people engage with that uh, or if people ignore that, you know, that they ignore that there is an anti-assimilationist, anti-obsession with the nation state as like a significant cultural force. Like, it, and I, I hope that people do engage with that. Yeah, um, I mean, I hope they engage with them in positive terms because <laughs> I'm sure that some people will be like, oh, what is this trash? You know, I was expecting some heartwarming story of, you know, like, yeah. you know, uh, American food or whatever, but, you know, whatever. Yeah, I do hope that point is not lost on the readers who need to yeah, hear yeah. it and absorb it, so yeah. yeah. Well, has the experience of writing the book as well as your experiences in food media changed how you consider the ways in which white supremacy and capitalism kind of use identity? You know, like you really resist in the in the text that simplicity like that. that I always like the circa 2019, uh, 2016, like response to Trump where it's like, immigrant restaurant, oh, immigrants yeah. feeding America, like this mm-hmm. really patronizing perspective that does continue like it it hasn't we haven't it people say that like food media from 2016 like really learned a lesson about something I don't I don't think it did um but anyway you in this text really resist that how how have you you know how have you responded to that um I think you answered this but also like how do you perceive that sort of tendency in in Mm. in food writing totally well I actually am so glad you brought this up because those 2016 2017 conversations those talking points that were so pervasive in food media that was what kind of animated me to uh, start working on the proposal for this book because I just found it so as you say patronizing so condescending uh you know it's almost always white liberal gatekeepers but men and women you know talking about immigrants as the other immigrants as people who only exist to serve the white affluent consumer Uh, And it's just plainly dehumanizing. And it also rests on all these assumptions about what America is and what it represents, of course. And I really, really wanted to disturb that notion and actually, you know, put those voices uh, and stories of these actual immigrants uh, who are treated like abstractions uh, by these white liberal gatekeepers. Um, You know, I wanted to put their stories first. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, I don't think that that whole attitude has uh, gone away in food media, at least from my observation, it's still quite pervasive. uh, And I wanted to write against that. Um, I think that through writing this book and also experiencing just like a comical level of racism and homophobia (laughs) in this industry, uh, or comical to me at least, uh, also traumatizing, Um, but, made me realize that a lot of people who posture as being down with the cause or whatever, their politics are not fundamentally rooted in care. And Mm -hmm. 
that sometimes comes out in really ugly ways. You know, um, I think of people who, you know, in 2017, 2018 would say things like, you know, screw Trump, immigrants are great, uh, <laughs> in front of a stage of hundreds of people. They're the same people who turn around and they look at my, you know, queer brown mm-hmm. ass and they're like, oh, you're too loud. You're too obsessed with quote unquote political correctness, you know, talking to me like, mm-hmm. you know, they're a Fox News commentator or something. And it's just so plainly discriminatory. And <laughs> those sorts of moments just reveal how hollow a lot of these talking points are for a lot of these people because they don't see people from marginalized communities as actual humans you know they don't treat them with care and uh I wanted to restore some of that dignity uh, in (laughs) writing this book and uh, I definitely wrote through a lot of my anger at what I had experienced uh from people who were quite powerful people I very naively trusted because Mm -hmm. I got uh, you know, establishment approval um, early on in my career, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's definitely a thing. I think also um, I came to become aware through experiences like that and also writing the book about how just white supremacy and capitalism, you know, these uh, twin terrors, let's say, they um, commodify people, uh, you know, based on their identity. I think that mm-hmm. there are probably a lot of people throughout my career who have aligned with me because they see me as this queer brown young writer who is uh, you know they perceive to be someone they should uh, publicly um, you know support in some mm-hmm. way yet how often do those people actually engage with my work do they read right. the substance of what I have to say and do they realize that my politics are very far left they're not uh, you know <laughs> kind of just stroking um, liberal preconceptions of the world um, they usually don't you know yeah. they just see me as this little uh, toy and so yeah. I became uh, coolly aware of all of this as I was writing the book and dealing with uh, you know various episodes that um, expose just how racist some people in this industry are and it's very scary when those people who are very racist very homophobic also have a lot of material power and you do not but right, you know, right. I hope that has resulted in a richer, uh, more sensitive book. So yes, it has. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, no, it's interesting. There are so many people who, uh, yeah, will be kind, so to speak, to your face um, or your virtual face, and then once like there's some sort of uh, upheaval or something, they're like always looking for a reason to discount the people who are critical of the establishment and Absolutely. so it's it's a really delicate um balance to strike you know how how outspoken and how um you know yeah just how outspoken to be because they do not actually want to um reward anyone who is critical totally yeah. I mean everyone loves an underdog until yeah. they stop becoming an underdog a and then b I think when at least this is something that I felt and maybe it's, uh, you know, totally bogus or whatever, or just my own kind of paranoia. But um, as someone who did get establishment recognition, uh, you know, when he's like 26, um, I think that there may have been a perception in some corners of food media, especially in its highest ranks, that I was being a brat, you know, in getting all this stuff handed to me as if I didn't have to work for it, right? Um, Uh (laughs) um, Getting all this stuff handed to me and then having the audacity to bite the hand that feeds him. Um, yeah. 
no pun intended. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so that's tough. And that's why I think, uh, you know, in the past year, I've really reevaluated just how much of myself I put out into the world because yeah. I realized that no matter how righteous I felt in what I was articulating and broadcasting to the world, uh, my mental health was suffering and my work was also suffering yeah. because I was giving these uncharitable, ungenerous readers a reason to discredit me before they actually care to engage with my work, you know? So, yeah. yeah. No, it's such a, I, a lesson that everyone needs to learn. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes yeah. it comes in a really hard way, but yeah. <laughs> therapy, therapy is yes. the answer, right? <laughs> Gotta well, do it. Um, since you are teaching food journalism, are you optimistic about the future of, of food media? Yeah. Um, uh, sorry, <laughs> I did not mean to say yes, I am. <laughs> uh, I might, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I am a cynic by nature, but I will say that I see fewer students these days, uh, at least the ones I teach at NYU, who see uh, writing for establishment publications and the dominant, uh, you know, mainstream publications as the best path forward, you know. Um, there was a time, and certainly this is true for myself, where, you know, writing a story for a very big newspaper um, in a metropolitan area was considered, <laughs> uh, you know, just the holy grail. And once yeah. you did that, you've arrived, you know? And yet I think that there are more students who do not see that as the only way to find success uh, in part because, you know, writing for those publications does not, is not always easy, especially when you have points of view that are a little more radical, let's say, than the, you know, left of center slash center uh, ideals that these papers champion, you know. Um, it's not easy to write about Palestinian food for right. a major newspaper. Uh, there's a lot that is compromised. And what I've tried to tell my students is that, you know, you don't necessarily want to put your name on things that, you know, are going to compromise your um, integrity or your sense of uh, how you view the world, you know? Yeah. Um, and so that coupled with the rise of um, independent food media, like Whetstone, for example, uh, you know, um, I think that has convinced a lot of my students that, uh, you know, writing for these big name publications mm -hmm. is, you know, not the only way to find success. So yeah. I do hope that uh, we see less fixation on those big publications. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I'm cautiously yeah. optimistic, uh, <laughs> but I don't know. I'm not going to hold my breath. You know, of I think that th these these institutions still have so much power, you know, and influence, right. and that's also where capital is concentrated. And I want my students to be able to eat. I want them to yeah. survive. You know, <laughs> and like, where's the good money? Where's the stable money? It's at those publications. Right. You know, so ah, I don't know. But, yeah. <laughs> <is> that, but, <laughs> but yes, in short. Cautiously optimistic <laughs> is my answer, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, usually I ask people, is uh, cooking a political act for them? But you uh, cook for sustenance and I right. respect that. And so I wanted to just ask you, <laughs> for you, is is writing a political act? Right, is, is sustenance political? Like, yes. Uh, <laughs> no. um, yeah, writing is absolutely a political act for me. I think it's the most meaningful form of political expression that I can mm -hmm. think of for myself, you know, because it's a way for me to distill, you know, my thoughts on who I am in this world as a person of color who has um, leftist politics um, in a way that is more direct than 
any other form of political engagement or action, you know? Uh, so mm-hmm. yeah, it is absolutely um, a political act for me, uh, but I hope others perceive it as that, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. That I, I, am, I do worry sometimes that, you know, like you said earlier, that some readers who want those uh, more milquetoast narratives, you know, will pick up a book like mine and just be like, oh, how nice, you know? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and not, um, you know, truly absorb the... Right more radical points of view that I have to offer but you know whatever one, one reader at a time right you know right, that's right. all I can hope for if I, <laughs> I make a convert for one person then I'm good so yeah awesome. sweet well thank you so much thank you for, for having me I appreciate it